All right. Well, uh, it was my senior year. My friends and I, uh, we'd been waiting for this moment for months. Um, and as the lights came up in the amphitheater, 18,000 people, most of whom were teeny boppers, started screaming at the top of their lungs as Justin Timberlake and NSYNC took the stage. It was tearing up our hearts, right? Uh, it was the summer of my sophomore year in college. I was on a mission trip to Brazil, and we visited the Iguaçu Falls. It's one of the largest and most majestic waterfalls in all of the earth. Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of FDR, when she first visited Iguaçu, her first words were, oh, dear, poor Niagara, right? Because <laughs> all they had seen before that was the Niagara Falls. And when I visited Iguaçu, I completely understood why. The greatest golfer of all time, Jack Nicholas, uh, he once said, if I only had one more round to play, I would choose to play Pebble Beach. I've loved this course from the first time I saw it. And friends, I've seen it. And I love that course as well. <laughs> the summer of 2015, my friends and I, some of my best friends, we got to play that course. And it was absolutely majestic. I was standing at the altar of a Methodist church in Yorba Linda, California, and at 4.15 p.m., the doors in the back of the sanctuary opened up, and in walked in the love of my life, dressed in white, father by her side, with eyes already welled up with tears. Nothing would ever be the same. What do all these moments in my life have in common? Right? There, there is a common thread, and the answer is awe. In each one of these moments, I experienced genuine awe and wonder. I was moved with excitement and just great, great joy at that in-sync concert. I was impressed by the vastness and the beauty of creation at the Iguazu Falls. I will never forget the celebration of friendship and fraternity as we walked the majestic links of Pebble Beach. And I will always hold the sacredness of marriage in that moment, that Sunday, when I made a covenant before God and his people uh, to, to love my wife in sickness and in health. Today I want to talk about worship, and I also want to talk about awe and wonder. I want to talk about recovering awe in worship. In his book, Real Worship, uh, the author, Warren Wearsby, he writes that true worship involves wonder. Okay? True worship involves wonder, but the trouble is that wonder is a rare ingredient in worship today. Right? Isn't it lacking? We're not lacking in volume, are we? We're not lacking in the instruments or the facilities or whatever it might be, but we seem to be desperately lacking awe and wonder in worship today. I completely agree with that statement. Has worship become dry for you? Is it mundane? Is it routine? Is it ordinary? Do you feel like so often on Sundays or maybe a Wednesday or a Friday evening or at a retreat, you feel like you're just going through the motions? Friends, when we lose our sense of awe in worship, along with that goes our joy. When we lose our awe, we'll lose our passion. When we lose our wonder, we will lose our intimacy with God. Warren Wiersbe goes on to write, this is the paradox of Christian worship. Okay, this is why it's hard, guys. Because we seek to see the invisible. We seek to know the unknowable to comprehend the incomprehensible, and to experience the eternal. 
It is this paradox that causes us to struggle with a true experience of worship, is it not? You know, we're, we're reaching for God. We're singing to a God that, that sometimes and often we're, we're not sure if he's actually here. Can you hear us? And then is what I'm giving, what, is, is my singing, is my offering, are my words, are the meditations of my heart, are they pleasing to you, God? Is this actually bringing you glory or is this as dull for you as it is for me? We wonder that. We fear that, don't we? We struggle with this paradox of worship. Well, today, as we seek to recover awe in worship, I want to consider three things today, and they're really simple. First is, uh, how did we lose it? Okay. How have we lost awe? The second thing I want to consider is, why do we need it? Okay. For some of you who have lost it, you don't really mind. You know, you're like, I'm not going to go looking for it. Right? I'm not going to try too hard to recover it. But I'm telling you today, you need it. We all need it. And this, the last point is how to recover it. Okay? So how we lost it, why we need it, and how to recover it. As we consider the first point, I believe that there's three dominant factors and three helpful explanations that have led to the loss, the disappearance of awe and wonder in our worship. We're not going to open our Bibles yet, but I promise we will get there. In the second half of the message, we're going to go through a ton of different Bible verses. But first, I need to deconstruct just some of our worldview, some of our upbringing here as, as Western um, 20th century or now 21st century uh, Americans. And I believe these three factors are first, uh, empiricism, second, cynicism, and thirdly, materialism. Okay? Uh, for us, we have surrendered to empiricism. We've been hardened by cynicism, and uh, we've settled for materialism. So what is empiricism, right? If you have a scientific background, you know. If you're a philosophy background, you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. In philosophy, empiricism is the worldview that claims that the only knowable and real things are those that can be scientifically, scientifically tested through our five senses, right? And now everybody, especially parents who are going through grade school, you know the five senses, right? They are the like, things you can touch, you can see, right? You can smell, right? You can hear, you can taste, Right? Um, those are our five senses, and empiricism tells us that the only real things, okay, the only objective things, the only factual and true things are these things that you can prove empirically right, through observation right, and research. In empiricism, science rules the day, and everything else is relegated to a subjective, personal belief or a feeling. Do you guys get that? Empiricists aren't saying that like, oh yeah, like love is nothing. They're just saying that like love and your emotions, right? All these kind of subjective, even spirituality and religion, they might be good for you. They're just second tier because what rules the day are the things you can prove scientifically. Friends, we've been shaped by this. We've been shaped by this. Um, when the Bible tells us when God is spirit, the empiricist says, Good luck with that. When the Bible tells us that God is invisible, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God, they say, okay, whatever. When the Bible tells us he's transcendent, he's like, that's why you can't know him. That's why you, you can't be sure that he's real. You can't be sure that he's hearing you. You can't be sure that he's with you. 
So according to empiricism, God, religion, Christianity, the gospel moves from fact and truth to fiction and feeling. Worship then becomes irrational. Worship then becomes childish. Worship then becomes something that weak, emotionally insecure people need to make themselves feel significant in an otherwise huge and vast universe. But the reality and problem of embracing empiricism is this. You not only lose your ability to worship God, you not only lose your awe and wonder before a majestic God, you lose your ability to understand yourself. You lose your ability to understand life in this world. Along with religion, you lose your ability to explain emotions. Okay, empiricism cannot explain emotions. It cannot explain morality, right? It can't explain a higher level of truth besides just these small, objective, scientific truths. It doesn't understand purpose. See, empiricists can observe the what's and the how's, but they can't explain why. Why are we here? Why does that stand? What is our purpose? What is the purpose of life and creation? Not just functionally knowing the world, but meaningfully knowing the world. The second factor that has led to a loss of our awe, it's not just kind of scientism and empiricism, it's cynicism. Cynicism affects our worship by attacking our core belief that God is good. Okay? When life gets difficult, when we experience suffering and loss, when we go long periods without answered prayer, and we find ourselves in the valley and in darkness, cynicism tells us, you know what, God doesn't even care about you. God's not listening. He's not your good shepherd, regardless of how many times you read Psalm 23. God is not good, because otherwise, why would a good God let that happen to you? Why would a good God allow you to suffer that kind of pain and that kind of loss? Cynicism keeps us distant from God, and it amplifies our doubts. Author Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, we've been going through this uh, on Wednesday evenings. This is what he writes on the topic of cynicism and a relationship with God, specifically in prayer. He says this, personally, it is my greatest struggle in prayer. If I get an answer to prayer, sometimes I'll think it would have happened anyways, right? How many of you guys think that? And it would have happened anyways, even if I did or didn't pray. Other times I'll wonder if it makes any difference. Cynicism questions the active goodness of God on our behalf. Church, is that you? Are you in a season of just dark and hardened cynicism where you're not really sure? I mean, you know the Bible says God is good. We know the the praise songs say God is a good, good father. But in your heart of hearts, in the core of who you are, do you believe that God is good? And there's so many of us that doubt that. And we're ashamed to say it. But we don't know if God's listening. We don't know if God is with us. We don't know if God is caring about our struggles and about our pains. Church, if cynicism suffocates our prayers, it kills our worship. If it suffocates our prayers, it kills our worship. If you think about all the things that we do in service, the the standing to hear the call to worship, and we try to remind you each Sunday morning, this is God inviting you and I into his presence. This is God showing us that he's for us, and that he's given us this gift of worship to commune with us. 
when we call you to repentance, to confess your sins, and then immediately after, we tell you that there is assurance of pardon because of who Jesus is and what he has done, do you believe? Do you believe that the sins that you committed last night, this week, the things that you've done against your family, your friends, your neighbors, your enemies, the things that you have harbored in your heart, do you believe that in that moment, you actually are forgiven? The cynic says no. And so you stay disengaged. You'll stand, you'll sit, you'll close your eyes, you'll mumble a couple of like, oh, Lord, have mercy upon me. But you will not have awe and wonder that the God of this universe is speaking to you. That Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings, is washing you and cleansing you of all of your sin. You don't believe that because of your hardened heart and your cynicism. The third factor that, have, that has led us to lose all in worship is materialism. And we've settled for materialism. And the point is simply this. In our pursuit of awe and wonder, in our desire to experience passion and something, something great and, and be a part of something significant, we settle for the path of least resistance, right? The path of least resistance. We settle for the low-hanging fruit. We settle for materialism. It could be a car, okay? It could be a person of the opposite sex. It could be a vacation. It could be a career. It could be a fancy meal or anything else that this world has to offer. You can find awe and wonder. You can get excited and thrilled. You can be passionate about something that this world has to offer, and it will work as a temporary substitute. It will give you that little sugar high of awe and wonder that all of us desperately need. You see, here's the thing, though. They do work, okay? Buying a new car, you know, they, they'll, you know they, there's been a lot of sociologists that talks about, like, the dopamine release that happens when you buy something online, right? Don't you get happy? Amazon? Amazon Prime, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you have Amazon Prime, right? Dude, I don't even know how much it costs every year. It's just like auto-update. Right? When I was a student, I got it for free for six months, and then they've had me ever since. Right? It's been 17 years. Oh, my goodness. Right? But we get happiness. We get joy when we just make a small little purchase. Right? Or you get that dessert, or you go out, or you hang out with your friends, or, or you watch that movie. What am I? There's all of these little moments of pleasure, of awe and wonder that we experience. And here's the thing. God designed that. Okay? It was God's idea to make a dry-aged Wagyu steak taste that amazing, right? That's cool, right? It was God's idea for you to be able to take a vacation and just be like, oh my gosh, this island, this mountain, this where, whatever is just so beautiful. It's so tranquil. It's so majestic, okay? That was all part of God's idea, and it's one of the ways that God expresses care for you and I. It's one of the ways that God allows and wants for you to enjoy creation and to flourish. But the problem is that too many of us enjoy creation and we miss the creator, okay? We enjoy the gifts of God and we forget the giver. And that's why we settle for this cheap, material, earthly substitute when in reality, God wants to be our greatest joy, our greatest passion. He wants us to be in awe of him 
as the maker of Iguazu Falls in Brazil, and not just me think, wow, that waterfall is huge, right? Wow, the Grand Canyon is epic. God wants me to think of the maker and the fact that God designed those things for his glory and for our joy. This is what happens when we worship created things rather than the creator. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 24-25. We'll just go up on the screen, but if you're an avid Bible flipper, please join us there. Um, But Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, this is what Paul says. And this is the section in Romans 1 where Paul is explaining God's condemnation, right? His judgment and his wrath upon a rebellious world. What does God do? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Okay? A couple things to note here, guys. Worship is going on. Okay? Worship is going on. It's not that some people worship and other people don't. No, no, no. Everybody's worshiping. It's just that the world is worshiping the creation. They're worshiping one another. They're worshiping these beautiful bodies. They're worshiping these substances, experiences, power, honor, whatever it might be. They're worshiping created things rather than the creator. And God's not happy with that. That's not part of his design. God's angered by that. There's wrath and punishment for that. Paul Tripp, in his book on awe, he writes this. He says, every created awe is meant to point you to the creator. Okay? And so this is one way for you to redeem your awes, guys. Okay? You have that epic, beautiful meal. You buy that wondrous car or that toy or that gadget. You go on that vacation. God says, enjoy it. Right? But give me glory for it. But here's the pushback. If you cannot give glory for that thing, perhaps that's an indication that that you're indulging in something that's sinful. You're indulging in something that is not of God. And so if you're like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this with this person, but I'm just going to give God the glory, you're going to feel a little (laughs) conflicted, right? I shouldn't be doing this to my company or to my family members, but it makes me feel... Oh, you know, like if you can't do the math and if you can't enjoy something and receive pleasure from something and then directly give God glory for it, you're probably in sin, okay? So that's just a little bit of a, an indicator. You can map out your heart and know your motives and be like, oh, okay, maybe I should redirect, course correct. But every created awe is meant to point you to the creator. So all of the horizontal awe, horizontal awe we experience in life and in the world, it is meant to stimulate vertical awe. So this is a thing, guys. That means you can bring your life into church. Bring your joy, bring your passions into worship and give God glory for those things. You don't have to detach yourself from the world and say, okay, now I gotta like bust into this like weird spiritual monk, nunnish mode and just like give God this like ambiguous, nebulous glory. No, you can take the things of your life that are giving you passion, giving you joy, giving you strength, filling your heart and saying, God, thank you for these things. And I want these things to bring you glory. 
I want to credit you for creating these things. I want to credit you for placing these people, placing these opportunities in my life. And I know it's all from your good and providential hand. You don't have to divorce your life from worship. And that also means that when your heart is is wrecked because you're not getting the things that you so crave and desire, you can bring that burden. You can bring that hunger. You can bring that sorrow to the presence of God and say, Lord, would you satisfy me? Lord, would you help me? These are my struggles. These are my needs. So that's how we lost it, guys. Empiricism. There are some of you guys that just struggle with that. Is God even real? Right? Is he even knowable? Is this all just kind of, am I a Christian just like I grew up in the church? Right? And now I took a couple science classes or a philosophy class as an undergrad, and, and now I'm like all ruined. Right? Uh, friends, I want to tell you that um, that is not your only worldview. Right? That, that, that's not the champion worldview that you have to espouse. Right? Uh, there are wonderful and reasonable logical, philosophical alternatives for you to take. Uh, Others of us have struggled with awe because we're cynical. We've struggled and we've been hurt so much. And our hearts are calloused. And then the others of us, we struggle with awe just because we're in awe of this world. We're in awe of ourselves. We're in awe of the things that we can possess and purchase. And we don't realize that all of that horizontal awe was purpose for vertical awe. Why do we need it? Now, some of you, uh, you might not have much awe in worship, okay? Uh, I was trying not to look around. I didn't want to like, look around and judge you guys during worship, so I, I didn't, not that much. Um, but then if you look back at me, I'm like reviewing the sermon while the song is going on, so like, I'm condemned as well. Um, so if you are here and you're like kind of low on the awe and wonder in worship, that's just not your style, that's not your cup of tea, you may think you're okay without it. You may be like, Pastor Mike, I'm more of a thinker and not a feeler, right? Myers-Briggs, 16 personalities. I take it all the time and T, strong T, right? You might tell yourself that your faith in God is more rational, right? It's foundational and, and you don't need emotions in worship, okay? You'd be like, you know, I believe in such a strong and resolute way. I don't need the feelings in worship. I don't need the emotions in worship because I know it is doctrinal truth. I want to tell you guys this, okay? It's not okay to go without awe in worship. Sorry to just bust that bubble, okay? It's not okay to go without awe in worship. Why? First, it's because God created us for it, okay? God created you with the ability, the natural ability to live life giving praise and honor and glory to be in awe and wonder of things that, 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 that literally impress you. It is irresistible, guys. The things that you love, the things that you value, the things that you pursue, when you get them, when you see your favorite team win the, like the championship, the Super Bowl, the end, like whatever it might be, you have to celebrate. You are elated when people that you love get healthy, when people that you care for thrive and succeed. You, you clap them on, right? You get it cracking. None of us here are completely stoic. None of us are absent of emotions and feelings. So like I shared earlier, there are two categories of people in this world. Two categories. Everyone fits in one of them, okay? 
And it's this, those who worship God and those who worship something else. But everyone's a worshiper. You do not get to stand here or you do not get to sit here and be like, you know what, I'm not a worshiper. The answer is actually you are a worshiper. You're either worshiping the creator or you're worshiping the creation. Okay? Which is it? The common denominators that everyone worships. So what is worship? Okay, why are you calling me a worshiper, Pastor Mike? Like, I'm not even, I don't even raise my hands, right? I don't even know the songs today. They sang a couple new songs. I didn't even know them. Like, I didn't worship today, right? This is what worship is. In the, in, the, in the simplest, most universal form, it is this. To ascribe value and worth to anything, okay? You worship something when you ascribe value and worth to something. It can be a small expression of worship. You're like, I am uh, gonna pay a few extra bucks for a better cup of coffee. So we worship just a little bit, Copa Vida, Intelligentsia, right? Those, those kind of bougie craft coffee places. We'll wait the extra you know, 15 minutes it takes to get a cup of coffee, right? We'll pay the extra bucks because it's better. We value it. We pursue it. Or you'll wait in line, a ridiculously long line for tacos, right, down in San Diego or for corn. Uh, some of the young adults and I, we were in the middle of the night on a random weekend. Uh, we waited like 45 minutes for corn. Right, there's this place called the Corn Man, and uh, we did it. Why? Right? I'm like 35 years old. Why am I sitting in a parking lot like a college kid waiting for corn? Right? Because there was value and worth there. And when I ate it, I wasn't even sorry. I was like, oh, this was worth it. I'll do it again. So if you guys want to go to the Corn Man, I'm down. Right? So those are the small expressions. We see value right, and worth. Or it might be a large expression such as committing yourself to six-figure graduate school debt. Why? Because you want to be a doctor. You want to be a dentist. You want to be a lawyer. And, and, and to you, it's worth it. I will take on the debt. I will go the sleepless nights. I will sacrifice so much of my time and my energy to pursue this career. You'll take on a 30-year mortgage. Why? You'll, you'll pay the extra dollars for your ch- children's daycare. Why? Because they are worth it. It is worth it in your mind. So you will sacrifice. If the juice is worth the squeeze, you will squeeze it. You will commit to it. You'll, and when you get it, you'll enjoy it. When you get it, you're happy. Right? When you get it, you're satisfied. You talk about it. You praise it. You're not ashamed of it. You commend it to others. You'll pass on its virtues and its benefits, right, guys? If you experience and you find something that is wonderful, whether it is a new massage device or a new cup of coffee or a burrito in town or whatever it might be, a new pair of shoes, you, it is in our nature to announce its goodness to the ones we love, is it not, right? You don't keep it to yourself. You're like, hey, you gotta come and try this out. Come and see, come and taste this, come and experience this. This has changed my life. We are natural worshipers. You guys see that? But the question is, are you worshiping the creator or are you worshiping creation? So the first reason why you need awe in worship is because you can't worship without it, okay? You're gonna give awe to something. It is in your nature. We are hardwired to worship. And when we worship, we give praise and glory. There is awe and there is wonder. It's what we do when we worship. Second reason why you need awe in worship is this. Jesus, God won't be worshiped without it. Okay? God will not be worshiped without your awe. So you can't worship without awe. 
right? You can't live without it, but God won't be worshiped without your awe. That's why we need it. Uh, Jesus tells us why in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 to 9. Let's look at this together. Jesus is talking to the, hypocr- uh, the Pharisees, but he calls them hypocrites here. And he's accusing them of, yeah, th- their sin and their uh, hypocrisy. This is what he says. You hypocrites. Well did, Isaiah prof- well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Once again, Jesus says, you Pharisees, you guys are worshiping. And you're leading the, the people in the temple. You're leading Israel. You're leading my people into worship. But here's the problem. That worship is false. That worship is vain. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees who have made worship an outward tradition. It is a vain and empty worship, and God won't accept it. Okay? Jesus flat out says, you know what? Try your hardest. Do your best. Follow all the rules. And you know what? God's not going to accept it. He's not going to accept your tithes. He's not going to accept your prayers. He's not going to accept your worship. Why? Because you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Israel's worship, it wasn't just about worshiping in the wrong ways. They weren't like, oh, we're not doing it long enough, right? Or we're not reading the scriptures in the right way. No, it was in the wrong manner. They were saying all the orthodox statements, but their hearts were far from God. And this is why God commands for us awe and wonder and worship. Because worship engages our entire being. It's all of us, guys. You can't say, I'm just going to think it through. Like, it's just my mind. Or you can't just be like, hey, I'm clapping. My hands, here you go. Like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a clapping worshiper. All right, or you do a little bit of this. All right, one of these. All right. No. God wants all of it. But here's the thing. You might think that that's pretty demanding for God to, to not just want your outward activities, not just want your behavior, but really demand your heart. You might say, God, you're so demanding. Why would you say that? You and I, we demand the same from the people that we love, don't we? We demand the same. There isn't a person in this room that enjoys being lied to. There isn't a person in this room that would accept an apology if you knew 100% they weren't even sorry, that they were just saying it because that's what you wanted to hear. Married couples, isn't that the worst? Right? And that's why women are, your wives are like, you, the men will say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the wives won't just say, okay. They'll say, why are you sorry? <laughs> and you're like, let me get back to you. Right? We don't even tolerate that. Okay? We don't want people to say, oh, you are, we don't want flattery. We don't want people to say, oh, man, you're the best preacher ever. You're the, you're the best friend ever. You're the best worker ever. You're, be, you're the best singer or, or, or coffee maker ever. If you don't mean it. If in your heart you're like, yeah, right, this guy sucks, right? Here's the thing. If you knew that in their heart, if you knew that that was really going on in their mind, you wouldn't accept it. You wouldn't be flattered. You wouldn't be happy to hear that somebody thinks you're the best of anything when you know that they're lying. We wouldn't accept that. And here's the thing. Why would we expect God to? Okay. See, we have to kind of speculate. Oh, like, does that person really mean it? God knows. God knows what's in our hearts. He knows when we actually mean it. And he knows when we're just going through outward actions. And when we disengage our hearts, 
when we think it's okay not to be in awe and in wonder, when it's okay not to treasure and value and love and adore our God and think, you know, it's good enough. I came on time. I'm going to go through the outward motions. So it's fine. God's not okay with that. And your worship is in vain. Church, are the affections of your heart present in worship? Okay. Is there sorrow? Is there brokenness? Is there contrition when you are confessing your sins? Okay, we didn't do that today, but every Sunday uh, on the non-communion Sundays, we have confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Do you mean it? Okay. It doesn't mean you have to start crying, right? Because I don't cry. But God knows our hearts. Do you mean it? Is there brokenness? Is there, is there sorrow and grieving over our sins? Or do you just say it because you know it's time to apologize to God? Do you treat it like a cheap apology? Is there gratitude and peace when you receive the assurance of pardon? Are you truly thankful that Jesus Christ would die for you? Is there joy and passion when you are singing God's praise? Is there reverence and longing when the word of God is read? Those are the questions that God is asking us today. And you guys know this, like God actually commands the affections. He commands reverence and all. The Psalms are replete with commands, not just to obey and do, but to believe and to have passion and affection for God. Psalm 22, 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. This is a command, guys. This isn't a, oh, if you've had a good week, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. That's not what is going on here, right? He's saying, you who fear the Lord, you who are the people of God, the offspring of Jacob, you know what you are called to do? Stand in awe of him and glorify him. Psalm 66 Verse five, this is the invitation. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Church, do you believe that? Do you long for that? Are you intrigued? Are you hungry? Do you hunger and long? Are you desperate to see how great, how majestic, how powerful, how beautiful our God is? Or are you okay with just being at a distance, being religious, Going through the motions, God invites us to come and see what he has done. Taste and see that he is good. That's why we need it, guys. You can't live without it, right? And God won't accept your worship without it. We've looked at how we lost our awe. We've looked at why we need it. Let's answer the practical questions now. Uh, how do we recover our awe and worship? And I've kind, of like inter, uh, I've kind of interjected a couple of things to try to help you guys on how to recover all in worship. I'm going to give you three R's, okay? Three R's to make it simple. First, repent, okay? Uh, it should grieve our hearts, okay? Uh, we should struggle with it. Uh, and I'm not saying, oh, just put, put you guys through a guilt trip. But I, I do want to invite you into a deeper pursuit of awe and intimacy with God. You see, for some of us, we'll come to church and we're not really feeling it. Prayer seems a little blocked. We're not really in the mood to sing. And we just hope Pastor Michael's sermon isn't too long. All right, guys? And the moment you feel that and you see that you're distracted and you're half in, half out, you have a choice. You can either tap out, go through the motions, and worship in vain. Or you can fight. 
you can fight for worship. You can struggle. You can repent. You can say, Lord, have mercy on me. My heart is a thousand miles away from where it ought to be. But God, would you lead me? God, would you help me? God, I don't want to lead. Just like Jacob refused to let go of that angel until he got blessed. How much resolve is there for us each Sunday, the times when we gather in worship, to meet God and to commune with him? Repent, friends. That's so important. See, if, if, if worship is about us coming to God in, in all of ourselves, right, presenting to him our hearts, that means that when our hearts are miles away from God, we can repent and not be condemned, not be lost, not be damned, and not be judged. We can come as we are and say, Lord, this is where I am, but I know it's not where you want me to be. I know it's not how you want me to stay, and so, Lord, will you lead me? Lord, will you shepherd me? Lord, will you give me strength? Lord, will you fill me? That needs to be our first posture, that we would have a desire to recover awe in worship. And when it's not there, we would say, God, have mercy on me. We need to repent, guys. We need to repent. The second thing we want to do is remember. Okay, Remember. And remember what? It's not remember the sermon, but look, remember who God is and what he's done. Okay? Hebrews, 22, or, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 to 29. Very helpful on this topic. Therefore, let us be grateful, okay? Whenever there's a therefore, it's a concluding statement. All of the previous things are being summarized because of these, these truths, because of this argument, because of who God is and what he's done and what he's promising. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Why should we give God worship that is full of reverence and awe? Because of who he is. He is a consuming fire. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we are reminded that Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. You keep on reading. We're going to hear that you'll read that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that Jesus shed his blood for you and that God promises to return and he's going to shake the heavens and he's going to shake the earth and all of the finite temporary things, all of the things that are not of his kingdom, God says, I'm going to shake them and I'm going to destroy them. But all of the things that are of his kingdom, his people and his promises, those will not be shaken. The kingdom of God is going to come. And so the author of Hebrews says, and if you believe this, not just in who God is as a consuming fire, not just in who Jesus is as the, as the author and perfecter of faith, but because of what he promises to do for you and in you and make you his son and daughter, to make you a citizen in his kingdom, worship him with reverence and in awe. How do you recover awe in worship? Remember the Lord. Remember him. Uh, and lastly, reflect. Okay, lastly, reflect. John Piper, uh, he defines Christian worship as this. Gladly reflecting to God the radiance of his worth. Okay, we talked about worship as worth, right? When you ascribe worth to something. This is what we do in worship, okay? You fix your eyes on God. You think about who he is. You read the word, you hear the word. You meditate upon that. And you know what you do? 
you celebrate it. You speak it back. You sing it back. You take a hold of it. And so you take all of the attributes of God, all of who he is, all of that, all that he promises you, and you grip it. You hide it in your heart. You talk about it. You pray about it. You sing about it. You boast in it. You are reflecting back the truths and attributes of God. And when you do that, you are worshiping, guys. And the more you do that, the more ingrained and deeper it goes into your heart and into your soul. And by the spirit of God, by the supernatural work of God, that should leave you in awe and wonder. You see, guys, worship is not this. It's not you and I coming into church and we're like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to tell God everything I'm ready to do for him. I'm ready to boast in myself and my passions and my accomplishments. I'm, I'm, not, I'm ready to check off how many quiet times I did this week. And so now today when we take communion, I did five. And so I'm definitely good to go, right? Worship is not a reflection of yourself. And the problem is you and I too often, we treat worship as a reflection of ourselves, don't we? You had a bad week, you sinned a lot this week, you come in and your worship is muted. You don't sing and you don't want to pray, right? You have a good week, right? Really blessed, really feel holy and spiritual. Maybe you like evangelized to somebody and they received Jesus. You had a great small group, right? You read a couple great verses and you're like, I'm ready to go. And so you're going to just mm, go for it. When we operate in that kind of economy, worship is a reflection of yourself. But when you realize that worship is us reflecting back to God the radiance and the beauty of his attributes, in every season you can say God is good. In every season you can say God is sovereign. In every moment you can say God is my shepherd. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. In every moment you can say Jesus is enough and his blood is mighty to atone for all of my sins. In every moment of life, friends, we can boast in God and we can worship him when we make him the focus and we reflect back his attributes. That's worship, church. And you can always sing loud. You can always boast and declare of who God is. May we be that kind of church. That's my prayer for myself, my family. That's my prayer for you. That we would be a church that gladly, joyfully, passionately gives back to God his honor, his glory, and reflects his worth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even when we lose our awe and wonder and worship, and even when we struggle to sing and to pray, we thank you that you are for us. And that you sent us Jesus Christ, who is able to empathize with us in our weakness. We thank you that you give us a Holy Spirit, that it can empower us and help us to pray when we don't know the words. Help us to sing when we don't have the strength. To help us to stand when we feel so condemned and so fallen. Father, we thank you for the gift of worship. And we thank you that even though we don't deserve this invitation to come and to taste and see that you are good, we thank you that over and over again, you invite us into your presence. Lord, as we prepare to take communion, 
And as we prepare to come forward to your table, help us to come forward in faith, believing that you are for us, believing that you love us.